Bliss listeners, it's Ryan. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast edition of the show. Well, as you probably heard if you listened to this week's episode, episode four, you learned that the podcast version of Alumless contains an extra fantastic 30-minute bonus conversation with our surprise special guest. So each week moving forward, you can expect here on the podcast version contain the LinkedIn live episode, as well as an additional 30-minute conversation. I hope you'll enjoy that and subscribe and let everybody know about Alumless. This week, we welcomed Patricia Nguyen to the Alumless Live broadcast. And Patricia is the Director of Statewide Alumni Engagement for the University of California Office of the President. And although she's only been in a role for about six months, Patricia is bringing a fresh perspective and great energy to the role. Okay, so first off, you're going to hear the LinkedIn Live show that was broadcast on Friday, May 27th followed by the bonus segment with Patricia just afterwards. Let's get it started. Uh, everyone, welcome. Of course, if you are watching this live on LinkedIn, it's great. Uh, we really appreciate you setting some time aside. And please do introduce yourself in the comments section of LinkedIn. We can interact with you and we can see you during the course of the live broadcast. Uh, Alumnus is a Chris Marshall Advancement Consulting production. So we try to do this every other Friday and bring to you a new episode of Alumnus with me as your host, but of course, starring my friend and CMAC founder and CEO, Chris Marshall. Um, this is actually the first time that we have been live, not just on LinkedIn, but on YouTube as well. So you'll see that our episodes are archived in the new Alumless YouTube channel, uh, which is awesome. And we're excited to continue expanding out our capabilities and, and bring Alumless to more uh, channels that you can consume it whenever you want to, maybe not having to listen to it live each week. All right. Well, without further ado... Let me bring to the show, the star of the show, Mr. Chris Marshall. There he is. Hello, Chris. You say that uh, each time, and I say the star of the show is you, Ryan. But hey, how are you, man? I'm the host of the show. You know, <laughs> we gotta have, we gotta set, we gotta set things the right way. And thank, you know, I think the the intro music, Chris, we'll have to talk about it as we continue to grow and evolve. Uh, it's called daydreaming, is the name of it. <laughs> Uh, it sounds a little daydreamy, uh, but um, maybe groovy, uh, Karen says uh, in the chat, which is good. How are, so how are you doing? What's happening in uh, Pennsylvania this week? I uh, am uh, have set my mental pace clock to end at the end of this uh, live stream so that I can pass out from three really rough weeks, but uh, heading into a long Memorial Day weekend. So, you know, regular workload and I always say live in the dream. Is what I tell people <laughs> up in my office on the third floor of my house, just chilling. <laughs> it's also known as the Belfry. Right? The Belfry. You got it, right? Yeah. yeah. Good memory. So Chris, Chris's wife just tells him to go up to your Belfry and, right. uh, and do your work, which I, I think that's pretty cool. I wish I had a Belfry. I kind of have my own version of a Belfry. Um, but uh, well, so to Chris, we were going to talk about a little announcement today uh, right. as as we were getting started and something something new to share with people. What are we sharing today? So um, you've done all this work, so you should do the sharing, but I'll give a little preview that we're going to turn these live stream broadcasts into um, a podcast. So we are going to be available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Let me make sure I get to all the list. Uh, Spotify, Amazon Music, 
but we're also going to do something else. We're going to add a plus section to this. So like a lot of uh, networks do these days, they have the, the show, like you can tune in on this and watch whenever, but we're going to move to a special section with our surprise guest into a private chat where we'll do, we'll record right after this and we'll make it live available only on the podcast version. So if you like the conversation and, and the guests and the topics, you're going to have to follow us and tune into the podcast to hear the rest of it. So trying to just get uh, more content out there is really what it boils down. So it's exciting. So Ryan, kudos to you for your leadership on getting us started here, getting us over into LinkedIn and now into YouTube and now on the podcast. It's fantastic. And I'm excited you're doing all this great stuff for us. Thank you. Well, you thank me now, but you haven't seen me try to edit video together uh, for the <laughs> podcast. So we may have a, another different uh, sentiment, but I'm glad to. I always feel like we have, you know, 30 minutes is good for a live show, but there's so much to talk about with our guests. And, you know, we've had some great guests so far. Uh, our today's surprise special guest is awesome, too. And to extend that conversation uh, and have everybody be able to sort of um, enjoy the show, but also um, continue that conversation through the podcast. That's what we were hoping to do. And so uh, starting, you can actually find the show right now on uh, those podcast mediums. And then, of course, uh, beginning early next week when I can publish the show we'll have that extended bonus section available for everybody from this episode four for the first Matt time. Winston, we'll interview you separately and do a separate podcast for you, man, since you were our guest last time. That's true. <laughs> the, the, our first three guests kind of got a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the short end of the stick on this. But we appreciate everybody uh, tuning in and for our guests to help us figure this show out, right, as we continue to grow and, and get better at doing it. Uh, well, let's let's talk a little bit about um, sort of the thinking about taking on a reorganization initiative on campuses. You travel a lot. Um, you're doing a lot to help advancement teams reorganize uh, their alumni and donor engagement teams. Uh, how do you, what are some common themes that you're seeing in your travels when it comes to how um, reorganizations are being uh, sort of conducted across our space right now? Yeah, um, I, I'm going to be concise. I'm going to get to our guests because this is going to be a fun conversation. But um, we are seeing a continued movement. I've been in the industry for 21 years. And and over that time, you 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 early on, you had a lot of, um, you know, the posture was very uh, leaned away, separate from the alumni work and the fundraising work. Uh, not in all places. Many places had figured it out long ago. But there were still, in the early 2000s, enough uh, friend raising shops out there and fundraising shops that it was, um, you know, it, if you're on the development side, looking over at the alumni side and you have that situation, it's just frustrating when you don't have those colleagues aligned with you. And what I, so I would, I would describe it as we're seeing a continued movement towards integrated advancement models. And by that, I mean the alumni engagement shop unapologetically leaning in and saying, we're going to play a role in lots of outcomes. And one of those outcomes is going to be on fundraising. And, um, so most of our clients are, are, are working in that mindset or have already gotten there. They're trying to fine tune it. A few new clients have just come on board who are trying to figure out how to even get in that path down the road um, to get to that point. So I would say generally that's where we're headed and, and the organizational structures follow that. The biggest change is that you're seeing um, there's been waves of this over the last several decades, but we're seeing another wave of alumni engagement and annual giving shops being combined. NC State has just made this move. They're hiring their next person in that way. I've, again, there's 
another dozen examples I could give you of schools that are taking the uh, what was the alumni position and combining it with annual giving or taking the annual giving position and mashing it up. And then the last thing I'll say is, Ryan, I've learned this through you and Adam Compton and others uh, who talk about the digital engagement officer. Those are new positions and um, that weren't around five years ago, maybe in a few places, but you know we're experimenting with it and we're seeing more um, people putting FTE time against the digital uh, engagement officer, donor experience officer. Yeah, I think that that's where a lot of the energy and, and the money, the excitement is from the standpoint of our, the vice presidents of advancement out there who are now able to think about uh, accessing that lower to middle portion of the given pyramid and, and how can alumni teams, engagement strategies work to make sure that all those pieces are connected. Right. Right. Uh, and we've talked about that. And I think we should continue to talk about that. Um, one of the interesting things that can happen in an alignment standpoint, Chris, and then we'll bring in our guests, is that in some circumstances, if you work for a state university, there's actually a, a system office. Right. I know in the yeah. University of Tennessee system has a, an alumni practitioner help working to serve across the state. Uh, and how do you think that that the presence of that state system alumni engagement officer, right, could impact strategy and reorganization on campus at, at an institution or another. Yeah, I think there's um, our guest is going to be able to tell us better than anybody about this. But, you know, from my standpoint, I think you get to the economies of scale and the power of the force multiplier. Right. You, you, if you're an institution that's in a state system and you have X number of alumni, it's likely 10x that or even more across the whole system. So when you think about leveraging everything from purchasing power to career networking under a system umbrella versus this year institution. Um, but big one for a state system, especially is advocacy. You know, the voice of 200,000 alumni is important. The voice of 2 million alumni is even more important. So that's where I see the biggest uh, uh, boost coming from. The, um, the person in that role orchestrating all that, we'll talk about this in a little bit, is the uh, is the magician pulling the rabbits out of the hat to make all that work, because it's not an easy role, I know. Yeah. Well, perfect segue. Now that we, we have, a, we'll pull out of our own hat a little magic uh, and bring into the stream our special surprise guest for this week. Yeah. Hello, Patricia Wynn. How are you? Hi, y'all. Good. How are you? We are incredibly excited to have you on the show. Uh, Alumless is pleased to bring on Patricia Nguyen, uh, Director of System-Wide Alumni Engagement at the Office of the President for the University of California System. Uh, prior to joining the UC Office of the President, Patricia served as the Senior Director for Diversity, Equity, for Diversity Inclusion and Engagement Operations at the UCLA Alumni Association. So we're so glad you could be on the show today, Patricia. Thanks for joining us. I'm totally humbled to be here and no. with you all. <laughs> she's she's being she's being modest, but we you know we had to go through her scheduler and her booking agent. And... <laughs> I wish that'd make my life so much easier. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but let's begin kind of with those who are unfamiliar with you know what you do and and the work uh, that you do on a, a daily basis could you just share with listeners you know what your role is all about and you know what are some of the, the things that you're tackling and and working on here at the moment yeah so i'm actually only about six months into my role uh, so i serve as a system-wide director for alumni engagement in the university of california system for those that don't know it's a system of 10 campuses 
a few hospitals and quite a few labs as well. Uh, we have about 2 million alumni, uh, which thinking about advocacy, that's almost 10% of the voting block in California. And so there's like sort of four main areas that I work in. In our California constitution, there is actually um, provisions around our regents. And actually for our regents of the University of California, there's two uh, alumni that sit as voting uh, regents and then two as designees. So there's a big part of my role that is looking at their role and how they can be impactful and making sure that they sort of hear from all 10 campuses. Uh, those regents, those alumni regents actually serve as the officer, um, executive office of what's called the alumni associations of the University of California. So every single campus has a 501c3 um, appointed by the chancellor to have a campus alumni association, the formal one. And then this particular association actually brings all 10 together to think about challenges and opportunities across the power of 10 uh, that can be. Uh, that's about 50% of my job. Uh, the other 50% is thinking about sort of unique ways to engage uh, the 10 campuses. Now, as you all know, all of my shops are not built the same, and that's very true across the 10 campuses. We have some campuses with almost two FTE. Uh, it's about 50 FTE. So the capacity for them to do things is widely different. And so coming in with a more equity lens, I'm thinking about how to meet some of the gaps uh, for some campuses, but also all the while trying to elevate everything everyone is doing and sharing it across the 10 campuses. And then I'd say, uh, lastly, I serve as the cheerleader and the advocate for alumni at the University of California Office of the President. So all matters that go on uh, from the campus level at that system-wide level, thinking, making sure that alumni are thought about from things like student affairs to financial aid to advocacy efforts to ensure that our largest constituency right, of the University of California system is thought of when thinking about those efforts. And then uh, the added part, which is this is new, and this is actually probably uh, where I feel the strongest is, uh, as you shared, my role was in diversity, equity, inclusion. I've been a diversity practitioner actually for over 15 years in higher education, and that's actually where my start was. Um, and actually, that's what introduced me to alumni. Uh, so I'll share that a little bit later. But the other part is we're also seeing campus um, campuses sort of organized together to create system-wide affinity-based groups. So I also serve as staff liaison to the first system-wide um, identity-based alumni association we have, and it's our Chicanx Latinx Alumni Association where there's representatives from all the 10 campuses looking about how to improve the welfare of our Latino community within the UC. So that's sort of my large span bucket. But if I was going to summarize it, I'm a facilitator, uh, a space maker uh, for our various alumni staff as well. So we um, are able to put our heads together, be in community and think about ways to solve the challenges ahead. That's a great summary. Uh, well, what attracted you to the role? And uh, you, know, you, you shared more about your work at UCLA. How did that work on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at UCLA inform your thinking in your new role as far as how to tackle strategies and priorities? I mean, this might sound weird, but I'm still having a hard time leaning into the fact that I'm like an alumni engagement person. <laughs> so I've spent most of Chris my- Chris leaned all the way I always still even call myself a diversity practitioner, which I think is still very true to who I am. You know, diversity has always been a philosophy and a logic of way how we can think about engagement in a lot of different ways. So, you know, I'll just share, you know, my entry into higher education. I don't think uh, most people would consider my backstory as one that would land into alumni. Actually, I had a really horrific uh, undergraduate experience. 
Um, but now I actually sit on the board of that campus. Um, so, you know, I went, I didn't have the great student experience. And even as a practitioner in higher education, I started in student affairs, right? If we think about the pipeline and the lifespan of alumni, the student experience is very key. Um, so, you know, spending 15 years in higher education, taking on uh, what I would say startup roles. So if like there was like a protest or there was something around demands around students that we're commonly seeing now, and then the university actually responded by creating some sort of uh, center or a person. I was usually the sucker that went in and said, I'm going to go do this. Uh, so actually, I met Chris at Cornell because uh, right. I was yeah. assistant dean of the Asian and Asian American Center there. But I share that story in terms of my motivation because a lot of those roles were not always built into the fabric of the university. So it requires someone to be quite entrepreneurial and you're short, not only financial resources, but you're also short political willpower. And it was at my time at Cornell, actually, that I realized the value of alumni in supporting and making changes at universities without the Cornell Asian Alumni Association. Shout out to them. They are the reason why I'm in alumni engagement. Uh, But without them, I would have not had a budget. I would have not had ways to navigate the institution. So, you know, that's why I got into this work and um, I'm attracted to this role because I'm seeing the power of it within affinity spaces. I spent a lot of time in diverse spaces and I think that design for that particular constituency can definitely be scaled up where we can do a lot more and we're thinking about the non-engaged all the time. The story of diversity inclusion is all about that. So, you know, with 2020 happening, I was at sort of a loss of thinking about what is my role in this world right now? And I took a, a step of faith and saying, you know, I'm going to leave what I know in terms of diversity work and try to change this in a different level. So tongue in cheek, um, I think I have this personal mission of changing the old boys club. It's an all open, all access space. And I think I'm in a pretty good position to figure out how to do that yeah. with a demographic that I think is very open to it. So, yeah. I'm excited for you, uh, Chris. And I know you're familiar with you know lots of schools in the state system in California. You've worked with UCLA. You've worked with UC Santa Cruz. What intrigues you the most about Patricia's role and the impact that she can make there? Well, I love the fact that you're coming at it from the perspective that you just shared. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Speaking as an old white male, uh, the good old boy club uh, needs to be invaded by everyone else who should have been in there all along. Um, and the inclusivity of the of the lens that you bring, I think, is fantastic. Because the campuses I've worked with are getting increasingly diverse. The UC system has always been diverse, but even more so in the recent decades. When you look at those schools, you, I think you're the perfect person for this role. And I would add just a couple of things. You know, one, leveraging, you know, the 10x, the 2 million versus the number of people is going to be a big advantage. Um, I also think that the learning, you know, UC Merced will learn from UCLA, but UCLA will learn from UC Merced at the same time. There's sometimes the the scrappy smaller shops will have to be very entrepreneurial and innovative to do the work. And you can learn from either direction. I think so all ships will rise as you begin to build sort of a notion of best practice and across it. But, you know, my my other uh, message to Patricia would be, uh, congratulations and condolences because it's it's like the ultimate cat herder role that you can possibly imagine. So, um, yeah, so I, I think it's great. I'm, I'm psyched you're there and you're taking this on. Patricia, did you have any trepidation about taking on the role? And I guess, you know, what surprised you the most since taking on the role? Oh, yeah, I had a ton of trepidation. And, you know, uh, Chris named some of it, but, you know, you're also going into a research one arena 
that is yeah. uh, mostly led uh, through relationship building and the relationship and the decision makers are faculty, right? And so, you know, a lot of the things around understanding how I'm going to navigate this role needs to be sort of seen through that lens, like understanding my positionality and all this space. Um, the 10 campuses I've always been excited about. I think they all have very unique um, uh Characteristics, you know, we have been from banana slugs to tritons. There's just like so many different unique characteristics to the 10 campuses. Um, and then the other trepidation for me personally was the fact that I was leaving diversity work. But, you know, honestly, I think uh, 2020 and on has been such a strong catalyst in terms of thinking about those values as, you know, as like a value add. So, you know, everyone's been really open. Um, there's been a lot of confidence in sort of thinking about the philosophy I'm switching to. Um, the other space that I've always, you know, struggled with in alumni affairs and alumni engagement is this kind of like isomorphism that happens, you know, we're not quite nonprofit, we're not quite corporate, right, we're somewhere in between, but I think we lean more towards corporate and that's like not who I am. So, you know, things like ROI and measuring all that stuff, I'm actually, I can do it, right, but it's not the preferred narrative I want to share. So, you know, that's some of the trepidation I still have, you know, right now in terms of how do I talk about this in multiple languages, but still staying authentic and true to the mission that I have at hand in doing this role. Yeah. And, and as you look out over the, the next months and years, what are some of the accomplishments that you'd really like to add to your list? Uh, right now, I think the biggest one, and uh, I just spoke actually in front of the regents uh, recently, which I am I'm, I'm very humbled and thankful for just being six months into the role, but actually changing the narrative on the ROI of alumni. I'm starting to find out in my first six months of just doing a lot of meet and greets and understanding the landscape I'm in. There's usually, you know, the story of alumni boils down to two things. Like, are they giving or are they complaining? <laughs> like, that's usually the two things I often hear. And so I want to broaden that narrative a bit more and not make the focus always about alumni giving. You know, alumni giving is super important and we need that because it's, you know, a way that we measure things. But, you know, I'm hoping the ROI can be seen bigger than that because I think our alumni are pretty smart um, and they want to have a relationship of reciprocity with us. So that's something what I've been trying to really get across to folks is how do we move this relationship that's often seen as transactional from the way we even think about our comms to actually even our metrics uh, to one of more reciprocity, uh, which I think is going to be really interesting to figure out how to measure that in a quantitative way. But I'm excited for it. So that's narrative change is the hope right now. Um, yeah, Chris, you, you hear Patricia talking and her thoughts on the role and facilitating system-wide alumni engagement. What's going through your mind? Um, wow. Uh, and so glad that Patricia's in the role, first of all. I think you're, you know, I love the way you're talking about this. And and the, the what's in it for me, mutual value discussion, I think, has not been talked about enough. And alums increasingly want to find that value from having a relationship with, with alma mater. It's not just about what I can do for them, but what can you do for me? I think that's important. Um, you know, the net promoter score like thinking in that narrative would be something that I think, you know, is relevant here. Um, if you're not familiar with that, we can talk about that on a different webinar, uh, Ryan. But um, the other thing I'll share is that the, the level of talent across the leadership in those 10 schools, I know all of those folks, that's phenomenal, uh, yourself included, but you're also following um, John Valva, different structure. I know not quite the same roles. And before that, James Stove. And there, there were a lot of really good people doing this stuff. But you're the way you're approaching it, Patricia, I'm just excited and encouraged by and wish you the best. I think it's awesome where you're headed. 
Thank you. And I got to give a shout out to John and Jim, like all the folks that came before me, uh, mm-hmm. Deanna Berg too, who also had a pretty hybrid role. Yeah, around this yeah. stuff. Um, that, I know this job hasn't been easy and I know they are all probably why, wondering why I took this job, but to be honest, I'm inspired by them. You know, this is a very unique space. So, you know, just hopefully uh, I'll honor their legacy as uh, we move on in this role. Patricia, are there any other state systems that you, you've sort of been looking towards? And obviously you're the biggest one, right? But where have you sort of gotten some inspiration within our within our space? Yeah, you know, being in my first six months, I've stayed pretty local right now in terms of thinking about it, trying to really understand the genetics um, and how it phenotypically shows, you know, with our 10 campuses. But I will say we do look at another uh, school system that shares our very similar colors. So the Michigan system is also another one we look at quite a bit. And, uh, you know, been actually exploring like the Penn State kind of narrative because they're a very strong system uh, narrative forward. So those are the two that I'm hoping to explore in the next six months. Uh, so, yeah, um, always good to look at peers um, and, you know, really paying attention to like the demographics that they have, because I think we're in a really interesting space with our demographics. I'd throw Texas in there, too, to take a look there because yeah. their state system, expansive, similar size. There's lots of similarities there. Yeah. Um, the University of Tennessee system, one I mentioned yeah. before, um, and I, I'm not sure that every system has an alumni engagement uh, practitioner. Is there someone in the Cal State system that has a similar job? To uh, you? Not that I have found yet, you know, so that's yeah. something we're going to explore, too, because I know some of the schools in the Cal States have been doing a really great job in their alumni engagement stuff, like really fun stuff. Um, so hopefully at some point, but uh, right now, I'm trying to make sure that the UC uh, is feeling connected. But yeah, thanks for sharing those best uh, practices with the other campuses. That's a really good one to explore. The, the, many of them had a position like like SUNY, mm-hmm. State University of New York. Uh, Matt Winston's on here from Binghamton. Um, and they had that position years ago, and it's gone away as budgets have changed and structures have changed. But uh, I know Tennessee, California, I believe Texas has got somebody who's who has this role as well or similar part of the role. So, yeah. Yeah, I got to do the power of networking and tap into your guys' network. So, help yeah, do sure. whatever you I'm happy to do it. <laughs> Thanks. Well, uh, as we think about wrapping up, Chris, the live portion of the show of Alumnus for this week, you know, what do you see as the optimum interplay between support staff at the system level and then staff on individual campuses? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 let's be explicit here, Patricia. The, the folks, Julie Sina, John Pine, Jorge, all the all the other ten people who do that work don't report to you, right? They report yeah. into their own structure. Yeah. So it's, it's a delicate dance and a, and a zig and a zag that you have to have to to, to have influence. Um, I think it's I think of it, you know, when I talk about a, a large university running a, a, a alumni engagement program, it's not just what they do in the central shop. It's alumni engagement happens everywhere across an institution, and the job of the alumni leader is the orchestrator of alumni engagement, literally conducting the orchestra and the music plays in athletics and career services and student affairs and the business school, the law school, central, all that. You're the orchestrator of the orchestra, orchestra orchestrators. So you have the ultimate job is to pull all that together and figure out how we can, when and how we work together is important. And there are times where it just makes sense that it's just the Berkeley thing or UCLA thing or, but uh, I, I think it's, you're, you're in the perfect uh, position uh, with background and experience to take on a role like this. So you, cause you've been in one of the campuses and you know, what's needed from the central shop versus the, you know, when we can d- deliver it on our, on our own within our own alumni program. So. So Chris, I'm going to adjust your metaphor a bit because yeah, I think no, I, figure out, I actually have a very similar metaphor. So 
orchestra to me still has a lot of structure and power. Okay. Yeah. I think if you understand who I am, I'm not about that. And uh, this is something I actually learned. I got to do a shout out to Julie, actually, uh, from UCLA. She's been such a great one mentor for me around this stuff. But I actually see myself sort of facilitating a ja jazz ensemble. You know, everyone has a different melody. Everyone has a different tune. It. it might sound chaotic, but in the end, it's so much fun. And there's a funness to it that, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love symphony, but it just. I know what you mean, yeah. It's a, a space that I don't know if the UC thing. I think we're more of a jazz type campus. So I think uh, I jazz, the jazz ensemble kind of uh, metaphor is where I'm like leaning into. So uh, yeah, the melody, you know, jazz comes in all sorts of forms. So I'm yeah, hoping yeah. Uh, I was just going to be an Emmy hit. <laughs> including, those, including those times of dissonance, right? As you know, when the music doesn't feel like it's uh, going together on the same track, uh, but you pick up. Uh, again, later on in the in the tune in the improv, right, and um, bring get realigned again. Well, that, that was awesome. That was a great. I'm really glad you corrected, Chris. I haven't done that so far. Uh, well, I can't take credit for it. It's actually Cornell West's metaphor that I've always used in diversity work. So thank you, Cornell West. But it's been a great uh, kind of space to center the heart and head and hands around this. Well, it was, it was a, a great metaphor. All right. So what we're going to do, uh, we're going to, we're wrapping up the live portion of the episode. If you are listening right now, live, my suggestion, save yourself the heartache of missing this bonus section with Patricia when I publish the, the podcast next week and go ahead, hop over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify, um, Amazon Music and subscribe to Alumnus. That way you will not miss it. Uh, if you think to do it while you're there, write us a review and just cheer us on a little bit so that more people can find it. And we'll be back. Probably gonna have to put a commercial in, Chris, right? That's yeah, we need of, uh, like right now is a commercial break. We're gonna go into commercial break. Exit music. And, and then we'll be back. With, we need uh, some jazz music, right? Yeah, there now. you go. Some <laughs> jazz music on the exit. We gotta have some outro, <laughs> some outro jazz music. Uh, and then you know, we'll we'll bring back into the bonus section. Uh, so stay tuned. Don't go away. Um, and um, we'll be back in a few minutes after the break. Um, Producer, you were great, though. I love um, the pushback and the, and the exchange back and forth. It's great. That's what we want. Well done. Yeah, my only experience with podcasts, just like totally random, is uh, through fly fishing ones. Because um, <laughs> I went out of fly fishing the other day. So it's been, uh, that has actually a lot of banter. It's a lot of like dad joke kind of like vibes. So, yeah. well, we're we're going to have to make sure that dad jokes are part of every episode. Um, you know, yeah. and I have a lot of them. Well, we're back with uh, Patricia, and thank you for uh, joining us. If you hopped over, you watched the live show, or you've just listened to the live show on the podcast, and now you're here for the bonus section, welcome. We're glad to have you and keep the conversation going. Patricia, uh, those thanks for some really great responses and um, their thoughtful take on the really challenging job that you've got at, at the UC system level. In your remarks recently to the University of California Board of Regents, you noted that the total UC alumni population has exploded over the last 20 years. It's become more diverse with a greater percentage of first-generation students. And I think you even noted that 40% of alumni are first-gen at this point, and that number will increase. 
As you've worked to come up with strategies to engage all UC alumni, how have these numbers impacted your thinking? You know, to be quite uh, honest, you know, I've been, uh, I'm a product of a UC myself. You know, I graduated from UC Santa Barbara and between my parents and my siblings, we actually come from five different UCs. And, uh, you know, I actually studied education for my master's degree. And we've always heard about like, no matter what higher ed program you're in, you're going to hear about the California master system design, right? So thinking about the community colleges, the Cal States and California. So you know, to be honest with you, the numbers don't surprise me because this is was the plan all along. The plan all along was to diversify the alumni base. Um, so I don't think it's shocking anyone. It's like actually our it's heading towards our goal of what we've always wanted as a state of California system. Um, but does it change my thinking? Yes, because I think it makes me clearly think about what I look at in terms of alumni engagement practices. You know, I'm very careful to think about what the demographic I'm looking at a best practice from. I'm also thinking about what makes the UC uniquely UC, and it would be that 40% first gen piece. So, you know, I think, as we all know, alumni getting a college degree is a form of privilege, right? Not everyone gets to have a college degree. And that's something I think sometimes we can forget that this is not a thing that we have automatically. Not everyone in the country gets a college degree. And so understanding that privilege. But then if you're looking at first gen, right, you're thinking about alumni and graduates that came from places where privilege wasn't always part of their experience. And so, you know, not only are we thinking about engaging a new population, I'm also thinking about how do I shape and help, you know, think about them embracing this new part of their identity that is of privilege. Right. So, you know, I can think about this from a deficit way, you know, in terms of thinking about, you know, if you didn't have parents that went to college and you don't know what an alumni association is, and then you see membership fees, and you also didn't have a great experience at a university, why the heck would you ever join an alumni association? And then let's say you get there, right? There's a lot of shadow culture joining boards. There's a lot of unsaid rules and things that you just don't know. So the sense of belonging just gets compounded from your student experience alumni. So, you know, that number always is a reminder to me of not taking the fact that this is a form of social capital that we have to be consciously aware of when thinking about and creating engagement efforts. Um, so that's a very long-winded answer, but I feel very yeah, passionate about like, This is like the pivot point I'm hoping. Before, yeah, and I just wanted to, you know, one thought that occurred to me while you were talking that actually Shana Kent at UC Santa Cruz mentioned and sort of brought, made me aware of it would make sense is that there's also kind of an undercurrent culturally oh, of, yes, of yes. pushing back of, right, of questioning and of not, you know, conforming, right? That's sort of uniquely California, right? Uh, perhaps how have you sort of encountered that dynamic in, as you've, we learned in your previous role at UCLA or, or from that system standpoint, how does it impact your thinking? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's actually sort of probably, I think, built into my thinking because it's sort of the counterculture space I've always been a part of. Like I shared earlier on the podcast piece, um, I was the response to a lot of student protests. And I'm very thankful for that experience because it's not like I got to Cornell after students protested for my position. That was, I was warmly welcomed, right? You know, there was still some students that are pushing back, like, why do we need this? Um, University of California, you know, if you look at the history of a lot of the campuses, there is not only strong student activism, but it continues to be run by students, you know, so a lot of like recruitment efforts are actually run by specific student groups, we call them student initiated yield and that culture is very, very strong. 
So, you know, that's something I actually have to not shun away from, but lean into. I mean, if you think about it, right, it's right. like we actually are producing alumni that know how to organize outside of structures. Yep. Yep. So why not pull and harness that power and making sure that whatever we're doing is in partnership? Because alumni in the UC system in particular will convene no matter what. They don't need us. Right? Right. Like The student organization structure has already proven that. You know, student activism has already proven that, that they can meet without our structures. Now, the whole point that I have now is trying to make a, not a plea, but a rationale on why you want to partner with the institution, right? That's more of the game I have to play than I'm going to create this really neat, awesome, you know, you just come plug and play kind of space. I can't do that because of the genetics of our, our alumni when it comes to that student activism. I like that term, genetics of our alumni. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, and and I've worked with UC Santa Cruz for the last year and a half, and um, they take great pride in being the authority on questioning authority. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, one of the things I've said to clients along the way, and, and I've seen this over my 20 years in, in the business, is that I, I, I quote something like, I say, no longer is history, tradition, and nostalgia relevant to engage alums. It's not enough anymore, right? Responsibility to give back and participate is not enough. And it's got to have something else. And you, and you're in that same talk to the regents, you said alumni programs can no longer be simply about invoking nostalgia. Uh, it has to be about making new memories across an alum's lifespan. Uh, why do you think that was important to bring up to the regents in that? I mean, you, it was your first time speaking to them and you made that point early on in your comments. Why that comment? Why that point? You know, I think our, there's a couple of reasons. One, our current societal consciousness right now, right, is all about actually understanding our history and where we are today as a society. Like, I think, you know, from like things, statues being fallen down, all that stuff. I'm not saying, you know, to be quite honest with you, I'm actually, I love history. Um, actually, in my first hundred days of a job, I try to dive deep into archives, mostly. Um, I have a vintage soul. Like, I, that's like, that's what I love and mm. dear. But, you know, it's also trying to find the narratives that aren't always seen. Um, is sort of why I do that. Now, why I made this point is because I think particularly because of the experience of a lot of our students um, that hasn't always been super great. Why am I pulling back to an experience that isn't great? <laughs> and also think right. about it too, like that time period they have is maybe two if they're a transfer, you know, four to six, but you have the rest of an alumni's life. You're really just going to live the memories of those four to six years, two to six years, I think everyone wants a chance if they're going to come back to the university to continue making memories because that's where they started making memories. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, yes, their student experience is great, but perhaps they didn't have a great one. Why not make new ones? Um, and that's something, you know, I actually have learned personally from this industry that I've actually been so thankful for uh, being in student affairs. You get older, but the students stay the same <laughs> in alumni engagement. You actually can see yourself in your constituency across and actually made it a goal one year to make a friend from every single decade of life. Um, and that actually has been really valuable personally. And it's the one piece of advice I give like any new graduate now is like go make friends from like a, you know, teenager to like a 90 year old. And I actually think the alumni base is a place to do it because you share yeah. one common ground around that. So why not build new memories, new friends uh, while still understanding this is where you come from? I want to um, pivot to the, to the brains of the leaders, the 10 leaders of the alumni shops that yes. you interact with. And if you could wish for one thing that they, that they would understand better about your job. What would the, is there a one thing or a couple of things that you'd want them to grasp differently than they currently do? 
I mean, to be quite honest with you, I feel pretty lockstep with the 10 uh, campuses right now. Um, I know the role has gone through ups and downs, but I think, again, maybe this is me being new and I'm in the honeymoon stage of my role. Um, but I think uh, they, they, they actually helped me chart out what this role was, right? Like you don't just take a job willy-nilly, particularly understanding the alumni industry. We all know each other. The community's small. So I didn't think there's no surprise on who I am and what I bring to the table. And actually what I've really adored is they actually remind me what I am bringing to the table. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I think the other one I just want to say to all of them is like, get some rest. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, that, that's the one thing I always worry about, you know, particularly being out of the day to day. I know how hard it is to manage a board. I know how hard it is to throw events. You know, we work in the off hours. We don't have like a regular nine to five job in so many different ways. And oftentimes I think when we're tired, we often can only function from a reactive space. Um, and so, you know, if there's one thing, it's just self-care to them. <laughs> um, but also, you know, spend the time to think about, you know, what would it mean to not work in a reactive space? Because we're often put in that. You know, I don't think we do that to ourselves. We're often put in that. Yeah, I, I talk to clients all over the country and you see an increasing level of fatigue on the Zoom faces that you look into these days. It's 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 tough to see. And you want people to exactly what you said, take some time, take some rest. And and to your last point, I, I think the you know, helping those folks understand how to do things differently and be more, I use the term focus too often, but um, alumni shops have taken on too much with too little resources to do it. And they get to the point that they're at that you just described. How do we get them to think a little differently, to be more focused and be more strategic and not try to be all things to all people is, is going to be, I think, part of your, I'm hoping it's part of your narrative and part of your mantra that you share with them. But um, it, it sounds like you're seeing the same across your, your 10 people there. Yeah. You know, I, I think we put our leaders across the 10 are, are amazing. Like I know they have the capabilities and they are already demonstrating what they're doing in terms of making those changes. I think it's just sometimes that, you know, the, the organizational structure makes a difference, you know, which I know we're supposed to get into later, but the organizational structure does make a difference on where they report to. And I can see the fatigue actually differ based on where the report and structure. Yeah. So, you know, I think the other thing too, I'd just say to all of them, like, for, particularly for those that are in the system of 10, you know, we do meet on a monthly basis, but leaning out to each other just to get that second breath or second insight, because it is a lot. It becomes a lot when you're in pressure from development and communications and student yep. affairs. So yeah, group therapy can be good. I totally yeah, agree with that. <laughs> That's actually what our monthly meetings feel a little bit like. <laughs> Well, Chris, why don't we just like swap the next two questions since Patricia mentioned the, you know, the, the changing, the dynamic that has a sort of made a different type of relationship, working relationship with, with the 10 based on how they're aligned, right? I think you even mentioned that in your, in your remarks to the, to the Board of Regents, which was that it's not a one-size-fits-all relationship, right? It's not a one-size-fits-all strategy, and each relationship is different. And some of them, you can tell it's not as good, right? Based on, as, as I think that's what you meant, right? It's not as strong. It's harder for you to create that connectivity. Can you sort of unpack that a little bit? Like, what what are the dynamics at play that make the university's organizational alignment around alumni relations more or more challenging or, or easier to, to navigate? I think it's on what the assumed ROI of the alumni affairs team is supposed to be. You know, mm -hmm. I think that can change based on where it reports up to. 
You know, I've seen some shops that actually report up more through a comms. Like, you, it, I mean, they all go through advancement, right? They're all in external affairs. But if you look at who's leading that helm, if they're a fundraiser or they are a comms strategist, you can see it sort of trickle down to what the ROI is. And actually, I'll even be more pointed thinking about the systems that we do CRM in, right? Was the CRM purchased to be a donor pipeline, right? So does all the stuff in alumni engagement fit well in that space? Or are your metrics and CRM based in more comm strategy? And those are the two I often see. Like I haven't seen like, and maybe you all definitely have because you've been much more experienced in this field, but I haven't seen this shop report up to an alumni engagement leader, right? I know we've had it in the UCs, but I just haven't seen it in recent years here. Um, But I I wonder what that would do, you know? So, um, you know, because I understand this, right? Development has very specific and aggressive metrics, you know? And to be quite honest with you, I don't think they always... um, uh, how do I say this, uh, offer a room for collaboration, right? Like there is this very individual performance marker that yeah. Can, yeah. can really drive not wanting to work with others, you know, and thinking about impact, right? If you have to meet a certain amount of money at a certain time, are you actually going to work with the Angry Black Alumni Association to garner that funds? Or are you going to go to the rower crew team, which already has a history of giving? Right. So, you know, I think there are some things that are actually counterintuitive to aligning, you know, development with alumni engagement. Um, so that's what I sort of mean. Um, the other piece, too, is I definitely see a difference when there's an AVC role for this person versus like an executive director role. You know, I can see the reach of campus that they have is very different and their work is received very differently, too. Um, I got to give a shout out to UC San Diego, like their alumni shop reports uh, directly to the chancellor and the career center actually is also uh, within their wheelhouse too, which I think is a vote. That's of Cheryl's team, right? Yeah, Cheryl Hellison, yeah. amazing leader, Great. definitely have learned a lot from her. Um, and I know that's actually a pretty envious kind of role <laughs> for a, an alumni director to have on their own campus. So we're trying to point that out a little bit in our regents, you know, there is inequities of how positional yeah. power is. Cheryl's background, interestingly, um, I knew her when she was at New Mexico State and she was the head of advancement there. And yeah. she came into that role in, in a very different lens on things. And yet she reports into the chancellor. And I think I think it makes all the difference in the world. I mean, if we can wave a wand and make that happen everywhere, it'd be easy. But there's lots of reasons why those don't happen. So, Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned actually in the live show, uh, Patricia, about the, the Latinx uh, statewide um, affinity group that you've been working to, to create. Could you talk a little bit more about, about it? Um, the leaders of that group, are you sort of, are you building a, a leadership board across uh, the UC system to help, um, guide this? And, and how do you, maybe you could just talk a little bit about where, how it's, how it's come to be and, and yeah. how you see it growing. I want to hear the origin story here, because I know that yeah. a lot of these campuses have an organization similarly. So what, how, when, I mean, love to hear it. I cannot take any credit for this. Uh, (laughs) I inherited this. And I say that with the utmost respect to them, because this is what I mean in terms of what I mentioned earlier in the podcast that alumni will convene with or without us. Self-organize, right? Yeah, Yeah, they will (laughs) self-organize. And, you know, I love the fact that they did it. Um, A lot of them uh, come from sort of an era where Mecha was very strong. And I mean, it still is, but through the origin stories of Mecha, which was actually a cross- um, campus collaboration um, for Chicanos. So, you know, the leadership actually approached uh, the University of California saying that we're going to do this. And uh, it was, you know, it was not during my time. So I can't really share a lot of details around it. 
Um, but what I'll say is I think they understand the value of alumni in the way that I would hope a university would understand. You know, I, I don't want to air any kind of like dirty laundry out, but, you know, I think there's a lot of understanding while well, they don't look the part, they're not giving, right? Like that was like the automatic, like sort of go-to on why we should mm-hmm. find value in this or not. And actually me being on one of the single campuses, you know, I did talk to, you know, the system-wide office saying like, you know, we should do this. One, if we don't, they'll do it anyways. But two, why not? You know, so many of our campuses are becoming Hispanic serving institutions. How is this not an added value? So their leadership actually was sort of uh, created on their own regard. They actually have bylaws, they have an advisory board, and they have two chairs that I work with. Uh, we're six months in now. I'm trying to actually try to find ways to amplify the work that they're doing as well as support them. They do travel to the various campuses too, which I think is a um, moment of curiosity, but also a moment of like watchdogness, right? Like they're going to come to a campus and say like, hey, how's your Latino Alumni Association doing? And some campuses actually don't have one, right? So it's actually pushing some of our alumni engagement shops to figure out how to create a structure around this, which right. I don't think is a bad thing particularly given the demographic of California. Do you see this as a pattern, self-organized system-wide? No, I think with me at home, I think we're going to be more proactive about this uh, piece. So I'm already thinking about some other system-wide efforts because I think it's a very different space for the alumni volunteer leadership. If they have to do it on their own, there is already built into that origin story, one of resistance, which I think is fine. But I think it's also not a great place for an alum to be, right? I'm not even thinking about this from the institutional level. I'm just thinking about this from like the alumni perspective. So I'm hoping, um, and as I think you all have heard, it's been sort of announced around quite a bit, but, you know, uh, anyone that is part of a federally recognized um, tribe is getting free tuition in the University of California. So trying to amplify, you know, thinking about our American Indian alumni, which I actually think is a great way about thinking about system-wide stuff when I think about equity, Unfortunately, the numbers are too small on each campus to right. hold their own. So why not a system-wide one when we have the power of the numbers? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I helped start the Undocumented Alumni Association alongside some leaders. So I'm seeing some of that given that our youth system is very dedicated to that uh, particular community. So I'm hoping to be proactive, right? Get branding kits ready, getting MailChimps, like all that stuff ready. So it's more so like, give me your thoughts and ideas and energy, and you don't have to do so much of logistics. Uh, to start building these out. UCLA was one of the first places I heard doing first gen and the DACA groups, um, yep. groups as we call them, um, and love it. And thinking about it at that scale makes so much sense. And and to do it from a position of how can we help and, and lean in in a positive way, um, I love it. So, yeah. That's yeah, I actually great. think that's where some alumni shops have maybe gone wrong. You know, I often see that um, they try to hire someone that looks a part of that identity. But when I was working at UCLA, right, there is no way I'm going to look like the 10 identity based alumni associations right. I had from like black alumni to Muslim to, you know, Latino. So I think alumni engagement staff really needs to lean into this issue around equity and inclusion to broker those kind of relationships more so than identity based um, narratives. What does that mean? What does that mean in, in sort of day-to-day terms in terms of leaning in? You know, how do you how do you think, how do you talk to uh, individual shops about really trying to uh, emphasize and lean into those strategies? Yeah, so uh, I moonlight as a doctoral student, not a very good one. Um, but I'll just say that, you know, one thing I've learned from academia and particularly given I'm in a UC system is thinking about your positionality a lot. 
So that's usually what I start with with everyone is why are you coming to this work? Like just saying because we have to isn't enough for me. So trying to parse out like, you know, what is built into the history, what's built into the fabric of your alumni organization that's going to allow you to do this stuff is where I usually start. Um, but the nitty gritty, I will say, too, is thinking about, you know, positioning yourself as less of a control person, but more so as a partner, because like I said, they're going to go do this without you anyways. You can just see that on Facebook and LinkedIn, how many quote right. Right. groups that are out there. So really coming with humility um, and talking about actually doing your homework, too. Like, I don't want people just to go up to, you know, a group that they're thinking about, like, tell me what you want. Right. That's never going to do well. But if you can say, these are the things I offer, I understand these are the issues that your community faced, you know, on, on campus, you know, coming doing your homework, I think will be a way better way to start those conversations. And also thinking about, you know, governance, right? We all do work in governance from boards and bylaws and stuff like that. Governance are power structures. They are contracts of thinking about relationships. So getting nitty gritty with bylaws with a group is super important than just saying, here's a template bylaws, just fill this out. We don't have to worry about it. That's your moment actually to really think about brokering power and relationships with them. How, how has the, the existing group, the Latinx Eugenics, uh embraced you in your role? Have, have, have they um, leveraged and try to befriend or have they are you part of the evil administration? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know quite know yet because I, <laughs> I, I, one thing, you know, I would say nitty gritty is like, just show up, right. Show up right. early, stay late, you know, help push tables, help clean up to, to build some rapport. I'm not sure. Uh, I know the ethos of this group is one that we started without the support. So, you know, just right. like my role at UCLA, I spent two years saying sorry for things that I didn't do. Um, I think I've been in a very similar place, but, you know, I'm trying to be very mindful of what I see them doing. And any chance I get to amplify them on other channels or think about, like right now I'm thinking about who's been volunteering to set up all their Zoom meetings, right? Is there a way, can, can I actually think about compensating this person that's literally doing what I would be doing? You know, so there are ways that I'm trying to still build trust um, I'm doing my homework right now, I'll say in the first six months, yeah. right? I'm digging deep in the archives of what's the Latino and Chicano history of the UC. I'm, you know, meeting and greeting as many as people as possible and trying to, you know, share my story as well as learn, learn theirs. Um, and actually really demonstrating that I'm committed to equity, right? That's that's like the most important thing I have to do right now to, yeah. to build before. We've got about time for just one more question as we wrap things up. So maybe we'll we'll head to the to the last one on our list, which is where do you find your inspiration to do the work that you do? You mentioned that you're a doctoral student. I have to imagine there's a lot of connectivity there. Yeah, you know, um, I think I sit between two generations, right? Like I, I say this a lot when I think about diversity work. Um, there were folks that went front lines, grassroots, and there's folks that went into the ivory tower right? To try to think about this stuff. And, you know, we're at, we're at this amazing place where, you know, there's a lot of faculty of color, faculty from diverse backgrounds that have created a lot of really interesting research that I think is really untapped from us, actually. You know, I'll share, for example, Tara Yasso. She has this model and framework called cultural wealth. She's actually literally trying to re-narrativize what it means for folks from a first-gen background or different space. What wealth are they bringing? Because we often see, you know, diversity in this place of deficit. You know, they're missing this, they're missing that. Mm. She's really re-narrativizing that framework. And so I've actually gathered a lot of inspiration from faculty like her that are trying to tell the story of higher education differently 
And I'm really excited to just figure out how to apply like their kind of research into alumni engagement space. Uh, the other place I'll say I'm an inspiration, and it's sad because we lost two grades, is I'm a Buddhist. And so Bell Hooks and Pitman Han are very strong um, leaders in the Buddhist community. Uh, if you ever been to Naropa University, he's like all over the place there. Um, they both have passed, but I will say this, particularly given 2020 and everything that's happening, even what just happened yesterday, you know, I don't think I'd be right without acknowledging what happened um, in Texas and Dallas and Buffalo. But, you know, often as a Buddhist, you're, you're taught to meditate, but meditate without action is a lack of awareness. Um, so that's a place that I also pull and I shouted out them before, but honestly, the Cornell Asian Alumni Association, y'all really demonstrated the power of alumni to me. Um, and without you, I probably wouldn't be in this industry. Um, I don't know if whether to thank you or <laughs> thank you for that, but at the same time, just watching them build something at Cornell, um, all on volunteer time, you know, was just truly inspirational in so many different ways. And lastly, to all the alumni that I've worked with, like I said, one each decade, but there's so many stories that I get to carry. And I'm just humbled by um, being able to sit in community and space with people because narrative sharing is just truly a gift. Like you don't get that every day. You know, we don't even answer how are you in a truthful way often. So those are my inspirations and the community I want to thank uh, as I try this thing uh, called alumni engagement. <laughs> Seems it. like you're doing a great job. Yeah. Such a thoughtful series of responses i really want to thank you for your really um insightful and you know impassioned you know responses to the questions um i've enjoyed listening to you i've learned a ton in this half hour and a half hour hour total and um you know, I, I remember saying this to a crowd at back at cornell the the best thing about my job was that we have volunteers that are passionate or care and and have opinions and are focused on, you know, trying to make the place better. And then the biggest challenge about my job is that I have volunteers that are passionate and care and are opinionated <laughs> about the job. So, so you have a little of that going on too, but uh, thank you. I mean, I don't know what else to say it, but it was really well done and thoughtful responses. Appreciate no, it. Thank you. I mean, I, I got to give all of us credit, right? Like literally what are we here for, right? We make space for people and uh, we make people space for people's passions, people's sense of belonging and, you know, given that they all have college degrees, hopefully they'll have an impact and influence somewhere right. else. So, you know, I'm just like very grateful that we get to be part of that journey for some um, and hopefully many more. Um, it's, 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 I mean, it's a great way to exist, right? So why not? <laughs> awesome. Well, I guess we will leave it there for now, but um, not forever. We'll look forward to connecting with Patricia again. We have to maybe make Patricia a regular on alumnus. Oh, I think wow. this is, this was too good. We'll have to, um, Make her out. the star, you the host, and I'll wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun with y'all. Um, yeah. And thank you for being open to me because I know I'm a little counterculture when it comes to this industry. But oh, I love it. Um, we, need that. we need that. Thank fun. you. Yeah. Uh, Patricia Wynn, thank you so much for being on the show. Did I say your last name right? Can you give, can you tell everybody how to pronounce <laughs> uh, your last name yeah. so no one messes um, it up ever again? Yeah, given like almost like 13% of the Vietnamese population is my last name, but um, Wing. Uh, it's like, if you want to think about that first NG is like the same one that you say in Sing, it might help. And uh, if you see it accented, accented properly, it has a little squiggle. So that's sort of how you say that one syllable. Um, but there's a great BuzzFeed uh, video on how to say it. So maybe I'll drop that uh, so they can share it with y'all. Um, <laughs> but thank you for, you know, attempting and trying. 
Unfortunately, my tongue is much more talented than yours, but that's okay. <laughs> I, would have needed, I would have needed a bit more practice before uh, the show to get it just right, but I'm glad that you uh, for the correct, uh, the correct sounds there. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend, Chris. Pleasure as always. And um, thanks for subscribing to the podcast. We'll look to drop the um, the podcast uh, the live show on Friday, hopefully podcast on Monday. And we'll try to do that moving forward. So thanks again, Patricia, Chris. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alumnus. If you're interested in learning more about Chris Marshall Advancement Consulting, please visit www.cmac.me or give Chris or myself a shout on LinkedIn. We'd be more than happy to chat with you, talk alumni and donor engagement strategies. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks time with the next edition of Alumnus. Until then, thanks and see you later.